Good morning, everyone. I want to thank you for welcoming us into your home on this Lord's Day. Even though we can't be together this morning, we're trusting God that our hearts are together. Before we begin our message, it's really encouraging to be reminded that our president has declared today a national day of prayer. I actually was asking people this week. I certainly hope he does that. And so it's a blessing and we ought to take advantage of that. So before we gather together around the word, I want us to take a moment to pray. And I want to encourage all of you as families and individuals to pray for four things. Number one, let's pray for God's mercy to stop this virus and to heal those who are suffering from the coronavirus. Number two, let's pray for a spiritual awakening of believers. Sometimes it's times like these national things that, that cause us to, to recalculate our priorities. And so let's pray for the church to be awakened. And us as Christians, it reminds us of the brevity of life. Third, let's pray that we'll see many unbelievers converted. It's God's desire. He's not willing that people should perish. He's patiently waiting for people to repent. So let's pray for God to use this pandemic to draw people to Christ. And finally, as Christians, let's Let's pray not just to survive, but to thrive. This is a unique opportunity for many of us as families. We're all over the place, but now we're forced to be at home. And so I want to encourage spouses to really take advantage of your time together and work through issues of communication and, and just enjoying one another's company. People have been telling me how they, they don't know how they're going to get through this. Their kids are going to drive them crazy. But... Let's truly pray that our relationships, rather than just survive, that we're going to thrive and that we're going to grow closer. This is what people did before we had technology and everyone was off to work. We, we spent time with our family and we, we learned to play games and communicate and enjoy one another's company. So let's pray together and then we'll start in our message in First Thessalonians. Father, you are God alone. There's no one in heaven and on earth that has authority over you. Your son Jesus sits as Lord of all, and you've allowed this coronavirus for your purposes, but you've told us as Christians to pray. We thank you that our president has called for a national day of prayer. And so as, as believers, we want to implore you, we want to seek you, God. There's four things we want to pray for. First of all, we pray for your mercy. We pray that this pandemic will will die out and that it will stop soon, Lord. We pray that it will just cease. Have mercy on those who are sick and those who are fearful and those who will suffer because of this, who won't have jobs or won't have food, won't have income. We pray because you're a merciful God. We secondly pray for the church. We pray that this will lead to an awakening of Christians Jesus warned about how the, the pleasures of this world and the desire for other things can choke out the word if we become unfruitful. Use this time to awaken us. All of us will have more time on our hands, help us to get into the word more and to reevaluate our priorities, our finances, and, and our focus. Father, we pray third for the conversion of unbelievers. You told us in 1 Timothy to pray for all men because you desire all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. As people are reminded of the brevity of life and that they actually could die, may they be seeking the Lord and may we as Christians 
have unprecedented opportunities to share the message of Christ. May we hear about people coming to know the Lord as a result of this epidemic. And finally, we pray for us as Christians. May we not just survive this, but may we thrive and grow as families, heal marriages, bring parents and children closer together. As you said in Malachi, you'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. We pray, Lord, that as Christians, even though we're not together corporately, that we'll keep in touch and actually spend more time talking to one another and growing in our relationships. And now as we open your word, we pray for the anointing of the spirit on your word so that we can grow together as we study the Bible and as your powerful word transforms our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we can't help you today. You're going to have to just listen along. We left off last week and we were looking at Paul's motivation as a disciple. And we learned that we have to check our motives, that we're not doing it for glory, that we're not doing it for praise from men or for some favors from others, but that we do it to please God. In addition, we also saw that not only do we have to check our motives, but we ought to be very parental in our discipling of others, that we would be gentle as a mother and instructional as a father with the ultimate goal that will help people to walk worthy. Well, we're going to pick up and we're going to look at verses 13 through 20 this morning. And primarily, we're going to pay attention to two things. Those two things are as follows. Number one, we should thank God for the impact of the gospel and secondly, we want to learn how to help others as they're growing in the gospel. So if you'll take a look with me, I'm going to read verses 13 through 20, and then we'll come back around. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Those Jews are the ones who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to all men. In fact, they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. But the result of this is they always fill up the measure of their sins. And then note these sobering words, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But in contrast to the Jews, Paul goes on, but we brothers, having been bereft or separated from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan thwarted us. What does that mean, Satan thwarted us? And here's why he wanted to see them. Paul said, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. So again, let's start in verses 13 through 16 and talk about how thankful Paul was for the impact of the gospel. This is the second time in the book where he'll continually just overflow with gratitude 
that the gospel has transformed the lives of the Thessalonians. There's four things, though, that as you and I think about the gospel, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. I want us to look at four things that he notes about the gospel and its impact. And these are things that as, as you go through the day, we can just say, God, I want to thank you for this truth about the gospel. The first one is found in verse 13, and that is the gospel is mind-changing. It's mind-changing. The interesting thing is that what the Bible teaches is that no one is born knowing the truth. No one ultimately believes or understands the truth about God. And therefore, naturally, the book of Romans says, all of mankind has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. But Paul says, I thank God that when I gave you the gospel, you received it, not as the word of men, for what it really is, the word of God. What happened that caused these Thessalonians, these, these pagans who were worshiping statues, what took place that suddenly they had this mind-altering experience? We call this conversion. And I want you to think about the various ways that God changes people's mind as they're exposed to the Bible. Because people are all over the spectrum on their views about God. We might have an atheist who's absolutely certain that there's no God, but somehow as he hears the gospel, the Lord will open his mind and totally transform him to believe that Jesus is Lord. We might have an intelligent intellectual who's into philosophy and psychology, and he might have all kinds of beliefs. We might have a, a Buddhist. We might have somebody who believes in reincarnation. We might have a, a Muslim. We might have all different people, but the Word of God has this powerful ability to completely transform our mind, to change the way that we think. It's very interesting. The Bible uses the word repentance to describe this change of mind. Literally, the word repentance in Greek, metanoeo, comes from two words. Meta means after, and noeo means to think, to, to think after or to change your mind. Now, for some people, it's very dramatic. Their mind-changing experience is very sudden, like the prodigal son. The Bible says one day he, he came to his senses. For other people, this change of mind is very very subtle. As a child, they hear the word of God. They learn John 3.16. But ultimately, God breathes into their heart and they come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, don't be discouraged when we meet people who have all kinds of beliefs. Just continue to expose them to the Bible, knowing that the, the gospel has the power to be mind-changing. But we'll note the second thing that Paul says. It's not just that the gospel initially changes our mind, but it also is powerfully transforming. Look again at verse 13. He says, not only did you accept the gospel as the word of God, but it also performs its work in you who believe. It performs its work. What does Paul mean by that? It's a very interesting word that, that Paul uses here. This word is the word from which we get the English word energize. And Paul was very fond of this this word, I, I, I envision the energizer bunny. He just keeps going, he just keeps going. 
Paul actually says this about the Bible, that the Bible is continually at work or energizing you who believe. What does that look like? Well, it's interesting that sometimes Paul will actually say God is energizing us. At other times, he'll say the Bible is energizing us. For example, some of you are familiar with Philippians 2. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you. That's the same word. God is the one who is powerfully energizing us. He changes our desires. He wills and works for his good pleasure within us. But the way that he does it is through the Bible. And so we ought to thank God that the Bible is continually at work in our lives. Now, in a sense, you could parse this out and say, the Bible is powerfully transforming in two ways. Initially, at conversion, when we come to the knowledge of the truth, but continually in our sanctification. And though you may be familiar with this, I want to remind you of some wonderful verses about the power of the Bible. Remember Isaiah 55, where God says, as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud, so it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, it goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me void. The apostles understood this. The apostle James in chapter one, he said, lay aside the sins of your past and receive the word of God, which is able to save your souls. Peter and John both described the, the word of God as a seed, a life transforming, powerful seed. In fact, the apostle John said in 1 John 3, 9, no one who has been born of God will continue to practice sin. He can't because God's seed abides in him. So what an encouragement for us to be reminded that the Bible is working inside of us, that it's powerfully transforming us. But it's worth stopping to think and, and remind ourselves that if God's word is going to work in my life, then I need to get God's word into my heart. The Bible doesn't say that word have I hidden my notebook. In fact, Paul said in Colossians 3, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. And so it's, it's a wonderful way to think about my, my time with the Lord as I'm listening to the word, as I'm reading the Bible. I'm, lack, I'm actually taking in this living, active, powerful force that's working through me. It's really cool to think about. This is why the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and powerful. And so let's not underestimate its life's transforming power. We might not see any evidence as we teach it to our children, but trust God that he's working behind the scenes. Because once God's word gets in our heart, we begin to see life transforming changes. But there's a third thing that we can thank God for about the gospel. And it's really kind of ironic because it's not something that we would normally think about. But we learn from this passage that the gospel, while it is mind-changing and powerfully transforming, it also involves suffering. We don't always want to hear that, but Paul told the Philippians, to us it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. So let's look at verse 14. As Paul was thinking about how God's word was at work, it reminded him of the suffering of the Thessalonians. He said, you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured 
the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. As Paul was reflecting on the way that these Thessalonians were being persecuted, we don't know what that looked like. Maybe it was some form of social rejection that, that their friends ostracized them. Maybe, maybe it involved verbal abuse. Maybe they were getting fired from their jobs. Maybe people in the, in the marketplace wouldn't sell them things. They certainly would be um, left out, perhaps even physically attacked. But as Paul thought about the suffering of the Thessalonians, he wanted to remind them that they're not alone. And that's important. As Christians, there's a solidarity among Christians that, that from the beginning, when, when Cain killed Abel, we need to remind ourselves that all over the world, the people of God are called to suffer. In fact, Peter, Peter elaborated on this in 1 Peter 5. He said, he said, be sober because your adversary, the devil, prowls about seeking to devour people. But he said, remember, these same sufferings are being endured by your brethren all over the world. But interestingly here, Paul makes a connection between the Thessalonians suffering by their own Gentile countrymen to the suffering of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And then he does something pretty ironic here. He goes off on the Jews. It almost sounds anti-Semitic. It sounds like he's really angry to the point where some scholars, as they've studied this, said, this can't be Paul. Someone must have added this. Or Paul probably here was, was kind of losing it. And he, the things that he said were, were over the top and inappropriate. And I, I think all of us who believe the word of God would say, no, that's, that's, that's foolish. But as I look at this passage, I'm reminded that the gospel involves suffering. And so stop being so fearful that somebody's not going to like you. Accept that. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. There's no such thing as just witnessing by our lives. The Bible says all who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So again, as I've said, we don't need to be obnoxious. But let's be willing to put ourselves out there knowing that yeah, maybe my family's gonna laugh at me. Maybe I'm not gonna get invited by my friends anymore. But I'm willing to suffer. But the interesting thing is, in a general sense, the Bible teaches that Christians will suffer in the world. But in a specific sense, Paul points out here that some of the fiercest suffering that Christians have ever faced comes from the Jews, of all things, the Jews. As I thought about this in the first century, the severest form of Christian persecution didn't come from the Romans, it came from the Jews. So let's take a look at what Paul says about the Jews here. There's actually five statements that are pretty, pretty condemning. And it's worth remembering something that I wanna clear up. You probably have heard people say, all sin is equal to God. That's just not true. I used to believe that. And one day I was reading the Gospel of John and Jesus said in John 19 to Pilate, he said, the one who delivered me up, which was Judas, has the greater sin. And immediately I began to pray and correct Jesus. I said, Jesus, you don't understand. There's no greater sins, they're all equal. And then he just said, I didn't stutter. 
And they came to realize, hey, there are degrees of sin. And in fact, if you think back the way Jesus taught, Jesus considered it a greater sin to reject God's truth in the face of more opportunity and revelation. For example, as he did miracles in Chorazin and they refused to repent, he said to the Jews in that place, woe to you. Because if I did the same miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Therefore, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And I go, what does that mean? Because we know from the book of Jude that, that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of hell. So I don't agree with Dante that there are seven levels of hell. But I do agree that while all sin offends God, all sin deserves his wrath. Some sins are particularly abominable to God. And what we're going to learn from this passage is that one of the most abominable things to God is to fiercely oppose his word, particularly when you're his chosen people. That's, that's ironic. That the people who have the right of first privilege not only take the first refusal, but they fiercely oppose it. So let's look what Paul says here. He's not trying to breed in us anger or hatred from the Jews. But at this point in his life, he had endured extreme persecution. And as you read the book of Acts, again and again, it's the Jews who are hounding him. And so led by the Spirit of God, let's look at the five things he said. Number one, he said, the Jews are the ones who killed the Lord Jesus. Wait a minute. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said of the, of the, the leaders of this world, he said, if, if they understood the gospel, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So in 1 Corinthians, he's sort of putting it on the Roman authorities, the wise men of this world. But here he takes it back one level and he ultimately says, it is the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus. It is the Jews who were the ones who said, it is this man's blood will be on our head. Now, now that's important that we stop and think about that because unfortunately, great men even like Martin Luther had an edge of anti-Semitism for him. Never, ever should this permit us to have a special hatred and a special hostility towards Jews. In fact, if anything, it should arouse within us a great compassion. But ultimately, Paul does put at the feet of the Jews the responsibility for killing the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he reminds us that, that this wasn't their first opposition, that this was a continual chain of opposition. He said they also killed the prophets. And as you think back in the stories of the Old Testament, time and again, God would send the Jews a prophet to turn his chosen people back to him. And what would they do? They would oppose him. They would persecute him. And sometimes they would kill him. In fact, according to church history, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half. But Paul moves on to say, not only did they kill Jesus and the prophets, but the third thing he says is they drove us out. And that word, it involves persecution, but, but it literally has the idea of expelling us and and this fit perfectly with, with what the Thessalonians understood because we read in Acts that it was the Jews who stirred up that mob 
to drive Paul out of the city. And then Paul makes a statement in which he's obviously being extremely generous in his understatement. He says, they're not pleasing to God. Sometimes in, in our irony, we say things like, no, no, please don't get up, I'll get it. But we're trying to get a point across. When he says they're not pleasing to God, he's sort of causing us to go, no, actually, they're terribly abominable right now. Their opposition to the gospel arouses wrath on the part of God. And that's hard to understand because we know that God loves them and he's chosen them. But then he says something extremely interesting. He says, not only are they not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to all men. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said, the Jewish synagogues are the fountains of persecution. But it's a really interesting dynamic because as I thought about this, I thought, well, what does that mean that, that the Jews are hostile? Kind of, It kind of reminds me of life cereal on the opposite. Remember Mikey? Let's give Mikey some cereal. He won't like it. He hates everything. But yet, we learn that for the most part, Jews are, are very indiscriminate. They hate everyone. But I want you to think about how this unfolded because when God first selected Abraham and he established this nation, he did have an intention that they would be separate, come out from among them and be separate. As, as he introduced the covenant with Moses, he appealed to them not to be like the nations, but rather to be a light to the nations and show them through your separate lifestyle. And so in that respect, it started out as a good thing. But over time, what it led to is a pride, a nationalistic severity, and some sense of a, of a revengeful attitude that says, hey, they come after us, we're coming after them. By the time Paul wrote this, it was well documented that this wasn't just something that Paul said, that many Gentiles felt the same way. Jews hate everyone except their own. At first I was trying to, 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 to reconcile and say, well, yeah, because everyone hates them and they're trying to stick together. But that shouldn't cause you or me to go in and say, my Jewish dentist or my Jewish doctor, he hates everyone. It should cause us to have a compassion and to want to come alongside them. But then Paul mentions two things about this Jewish opposition that really cause us to go, wow, what does that mean? He says, first of all, because of this way that they've hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They therefore fill up the measure of their sins. What, what does that mean? Well, first of all, think about this. <clears throat> he says they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles <coughs> in order to be saved. Trust me, that was just a tickle. I'm fine. Lord will. So, remember the Jews had a vested interest in converting Gentiles. Jesus spoke about this. He said, you go all over the world and you make proselytes out of the Gentiles, but you turn them into twice sons of hell. Why would Jews already be proselytizing? Well, think about the Judaizers. Think about two things. The very things that Paul said that he didn't want. Money and fame. Paul told the Galatians, the reason these Judaizers want you 
is for their own benefit. They're taking advantage of you. And so these Jews who had proselytized Gentiles to get their money and to get praise from them and to bring them under their thumb, Paul came with the gospel and was taking them away. And so Paul says, they hinder us. Jesus spoke about this. He said to the Jewish leaders of his time, not only do you exclude yourselves from hell or from, from heaven and the kingdom of God, but you hinder those who are trying to get there. Wow, there aren't many things that are more abominable to God than to hinder someone else. And I want to remind those of you who interact with children that Jesus said it would be better to have a rock tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause a little child who believes in God to stumble. So Paul says, the result is that they fill up the measure of their sins. What does that mean? There's this continuity throughout the Bible that somehow God keeps a record of man's sins. And perhaps we might, might picture a, a measuring cup. And there, in that cup, is a continual addition of, we'll just take seeds, maybe rice. But as we continue to sin, and as nations and people groups continue to sin, that cup begins to fill, that there's a point in which it overflows. In fact, the first time we're introduced to this is in Genesis chapter 15, when God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this promised land, but you're going to need to leave for 400 years. You're going to go down to Egypt, because the people who live here, their sins are not yet filled. But 400 years later, when their sins were filled, God sent Moses into the land of Canaan and said, destroy them all. They've reached the limit. So Paul uses the same analogy throughout the Old Testament as the Jews continually opposed God. They were adding to that cup. And Paul senses that right now, in this time, having just killed Jesus a few years earlier, that they've reached the limit. Well, what does that mean? Well, his final phrase about the Jews is this. He says, wrath has come upon them to the utmost. What does that mean? I would have expected him to say, boy, wrath is coming upon them. Stinks to be them on Judgment Day. But he doesn't put this into the future as though they're going to get it. He says, wrath has come upon them. To the utmost. Now that word could be translated forever, but it could be a measure of degree to the utmost. Now, there's a couple possibilities for this. Some people believe that Paul was thinking about the words of Jesus. When Jesus was on earth during his three and a half year ministry, he continually predicted a destruction of Jerusalem, a massive, violent attack from Gentiles that would devastate the, the Jews. Many believe that the Holy Spirit was revealing to Paul that this was coming very soon. We know that this happened in 70 AD. So it's possible that Paul saw the impending cloud of God's judgment. And, and in many ways, from that day on, they've never been the same. They've never had their temple anymore. And to a certain extent, it was, a, it was an un, un, unprecedented outpouring of God's wrath. That's possible. 
It's also possible that it was around this time that the Emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And so perhaps Paul was thinking about the Jews being kicked out of Rome. We know that somewhere during this time there was a severe famine in Judea. Perhaps Paul saw this severe famine as God's wrath. We also read in extra-biblical literature that one of the, the leaders of the Jewish people after Pilate brought about a severe persecution. But, but we can't really say for sure what he meant. But whatever he meant, he sensed that something horrible was upon the Jews. But, but I want to, before I leave this point, remind you that this is not the whole story of how we should view Jews. And I really want to encourage all of you to go back and read Romans 9 through 11. Because in Romans 9 through 11, we see the tremendous compassion of Paul. He pours out his heart. He says, I have constant sorrow. I trade my salvation for them. I have unceasing grief and I pray for them. They're my dear brothers. And so Paul had a great love for these people. And he explains the mystery of God's sovereignty in Romans 9 through 11 when he says that the Jews are are not coming to Christ right now because, because of God's election. There's, there's a sense in which God has set them aside. But they're also not coming to Christ because of their own personal rejection. He goes on to explain this in Romans 11. He says, I want you to understand that there's a mystery here. God has partially hardened the Jews until the fullness of Gentiles will come in, but then all Israel will be saved. So we should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I believe the Bible teaches in the last days there will be a massive conversion of Jews. Zechariah chapter 11 predicts that in those last days God will pour out a spirit of supplication and they'll look on him whom they've pierced and they'll weep and mourn for him. But for now, the Bible says from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies. But from the standpoint of the promises of God, God will not go back on his promises to the Jews. Well, real quickly, let's just finish this chapter in verses 17 through 20. We've seen that we should thank God for the impact of the gospel. It's mind-changing, life-transforming. It produces suffering, sometimes generally and specifically from the Jews. But the other thing I want us to note here is that we should intentionally find our joy in helping others with the gospel. C.S. Lewis said something about joy once that's really interesting. He, 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 he described joy as sort of a pot of gold. If you chase after it, it'll never find you. If you try to find your joy and your happiness in, in, in doing things for yourself, it'll never find you. But I think what the Bible teaches is that is as we turn our focus on helping others, that joy overtakes us. Because we'll note that Paul's going to speak of the joy that he found in helping the Thessalonians. And so a couple things I want you to think about as, as we wind down. First of all, if we're going to help others find our joy in the gospel and their joy in the gospel, it involves staying connected. Now this is ironic because right now we literally are not able to stay physically connected. And that's exactly what Paul was feeling. He said in verse 17, My brothers, I've been bereft of you for a short time. Really interesting word. The Greek word there is the word for an orphan. He says, I feel like I've been orphaned from you. I, I can't connect with you face to face. He said, although it's only, it's only in face, 
it, it, physically, not in my spirit. I haven't been orphaned from you in my spirit. So I'm all the more eager to see your face. And so I want you to think about this, that during this time that we can't all gather together, we should, we should want to be connected. And here's some, some practical thoughts. First of all, it's really important to keep people in your heart. My wife and I kind of have an ongoing conversation when we're apart from each other for a few days or even from work. Did you think about me today? How often did you think about me? It used to break my heart when I'd call one of my kids and they'd go down to my brothers and be hanging out with their cousins and having a great time. And I'd say to one of my kids, hey, did, did you miss me? You thinking of me? The one who's exceptionally honest would just say, well, not really, Dad. And I'd say, just lie then. Just pretend you miss me. But think about this. It's really meaningful to recognize that if we care about people, they're going to be in our heart even when we're not with them. And if people are in our heart, then they ought to be in our prayers. You've probably heard the term fair-weather friends. And all of us know people like this. Boy, when you see them, they're like best friends. But you never hear from them unless you pick up the phone. And you wonder, do they really think about you? Do they really care about you? And so let, let's pray that we will, number one, keep people in our heart. But number two, let's keep them in our prayers. If someone's on my heart, then I should be praying for them, thanking God for them, and asking God to help them grow. In fact, I think this is one of the images of the high priest. He had the 12 stones on his chest with the names of the 12 tribes. They were on his heart. He had them on his shoulders. He was bringing them before God. So we, we, we stay connected in, in heart, but also with prayers. Third, I want to encourage you to stay connected because we have opportunities that Paul didn't have. They stay connected only through letters. We have social media. We have telephones. We have computers. During this time where we cannot gather and we're disconnected physically, reach out. Make this an opportunity to call your friends. See how they're doing. Facebook, text. Let, let's promote contact. And then finally, let's always keep it a goal to ideally be together in person. Paul said, I long to see you. So helping others means staying connected. Secondly, helping others means I have to recognize sometimes it's going to be Satan disrupted. Paul says, I want you to know, unlike these people are saying, I didn't leave because I didn't want to suffer. I didn't leave because I took your money. I left and I tried to come back. But notice what he says. Satan thwarted us. This Greek word means to chop up a road and make it difficult to travel. Now, I don't know how he did this, but Satan hates when we spend time with other Christians, when we seek to build up other Christians, and he'll do what he can to stop it. In fact, literally, as I was recording this sermon yesterday, I got halfway through it, I was about to disperse, and the power went down in my whole neighborhood, we lost the whole sermon. Reminded of William Carey, the great missionary to India. He spent 20 years learning the language of the people, translating the Bible into their language, ordering printing presses from, from Britain, getting everything set up, 20 years of work, and the warehouse burned to the ground and he lost it all. If that's not Satan, I don't know what it is. And yet, his response was, well, I guess God wanted me to do it better. And for the next seven years, he just redid it until he got the word of God to the people. So, so, so don't be discouraged. If Satan's trying to hinder you, recognize that God wants us to be steadfast and unmovable. And, and, and we're in a spiritual war. 
So be praying, praying, and praying some more that God will keep us from discouragement. Lastly, if we're going to help others grow in the gospel, we certainly we want to be connected. We want to recognize we'll be Satan thwarted. But lastly, we need to be second coming focused. As Paul thought about these people he loved, he always thought about them in light of the return of Christ. He says, who is our hope or joy or crown of all exaltation? Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? You are our glory and our joy. As we close this morning, what do you think about this? As you think about the people you love most, your spouse, your children, your parents. So many times, especially with our kids, we're so concerned about their earthly success, protecting them, seeing them thrive. But I think that ultimately what we need to think about most is that there's going to come a day when they're going to stand before Jesus. And when they stand before Jesus, that's what matters most. Not, not that my kid was a great lawyer, but was he a great prayer? Not that he was famous, but Lord, I pray that my child will be faithful. Not that he was wealthy, but that my child was holy. Paul continually would say to the saints, I love you and I look forward and I want you to stand before Jesus, Jesus blameless. Not that my kids will be comfortable, but that my kids will be fulfilling their calling. Let me share with you a couple of things I pray for as I think about this second coming focus as we minister to our family and friends. Number one, we should pray for one another that we please God in every respect. Colossians 1, Paul said, I pray regularly that you'll please God. Number two, we should pray that our, our children and our loved ones will stand mature and fulfilling the will of God. That's how Paul prayed. That not just that they would be kept from the evil one, but that they'll be doing God's will. Third, that they will be delivered and protected from Satan and that they'll be strengthened in their trials. But lastly, as, as we think about others, think about people that you love that you're ministering to. Picture them on the day of the Lord Jesus. Picture them standing before Jesus. Make it your desire that God will say to them and to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's been great to be in your home today. Thank you so much for Letting us be in the Word, I hope that you'll have conversations about the Word with one another, talking about verses or thoughts that stood out to you that you want to pray for. But let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you so much that it's still working in us. May we think deeply about your Word and be transformed by its power. We thank you that you've changed our mind and continue to renew our minds in Scripture. Please help us to be willing to suffer. But especially, we, we want to pray for those that we love, that they will be standing blameless before you one day, that we will take our joy, not in our own success, but in seeing that others we love are growing and walking with Jesus. And if you're here today and you have not yet given your life to Christ, you have not yet responded to the gospel. You can do that right there. You can tell the Lord Jesus you believe that he died and rose again. Surrender your will to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Trust him for your salvation. Father, bless us, protect us, and may we advance the gospel as you have mercy on our nation and on the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.